Hello, everyone. On today's episode, I welcome Gerard Cabrera, and we're going to talk about the book that saved his life, The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann. The Magic Mountain is about a young man, Hans Kostorp, who goes to visit his cousin who is being treated for tuberculosis in the mountain of Davos, Switzerland. However, while staying there, he catches an infection himself and ends up living at the sanatorium for seven years. This novel is considered one of the greats and was written by Thomas Mann, who lived his life out of the closet for part of his life and then in the closet and then had kids who all turned out to be gay or bisexual. Gerard and I are going to talk about how the Magic Mountain allowed him to see himself and even escape some of the disasters that seemed ready to befall him, like losing his family by coming out or even getting sick before he could fall in love. I have been looking to forward to this conversation for weeks now, so let's get started. My name is JP Derbogosian, and you're listening to This Queer Book Saved My Life. Hi, Gerard. Thanks for being here. How are you? I'm good. Hi, JP. It's great to meet you. Likewise. Likewise. So as we're getting started here, quick shout out to Quatrefoil Library. They are an LGBTQ library and event space in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. What's really neat is they have set up a page on their website, qlibrary.org, where you can read digital versions of the books featured on this podcast. So if you can't buy them, you can still read them. We're including links in the show notes. Okay, Gerard, tell us about yourself. I mean, you're a writer, you've run a safe sex program, founded an LGBT Puerto Rican empowerment group. Share it all. Tell us everything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I helped in doing those things. I I can't say that I did all of those things on my own, JP. Um, Don't be humble. This is your time. (laughs) Well, no, but but seriously, you know, as you know, like we, we all live in our communities and nothing gets done unless we work together. Um, Mm -hmm. so I think, you know, from an early, from an early age, I got some of those lessons in the, in the neighborhood I grew up in. Um, I grew up in, uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, um, in the Puerto Rican neighborhood, um, at the time it spread out since then. Uh, and, um, in the seventies, um, there was a program called the Vista Volunteers. I think they were sort of like a domestic peace corps and we were, sort of in, invaded in a good way by people from outside of the neighborhood who basically brought their community organizing skills with them. And we founded uh, a food co-op and a credit union. And I uh, got to meet all sorts of really interesting people from places like the Midwest, you know, which is foreign land to me. Anyway, uh, I know. <laughs> as someone who lives in Minneapolis, it's not that foreign, <laughs> but I get it. I get it. And that was pretty much my introduction to community organizing. And some of it was successful. Um, there, a food co-op was formed and a credit union was formed. And there was political activism uh, about, you know, poverty issues mm. and housing issues and things like that. That's that was my introduction, really, to I guess activism or political activism. My parents uh, participated in it somewhat, and but it was pretty much community wide, and um, it was a lot of fun too. I learned a lot. After that, you know, I just kind of continued, in a sense, on um, in that way um, in my high school. Um, well, even in my in my um, in my uh, elementary school, I was taught by nuns. 
Um, oh, they really? were the, the groovy nuns. Um, the, the guitar playing, nuns. guitar playing nuns, folk songs. Um, and, uh, I remember that they had an assembly, um, where they had all of the students come to the auditorium and we were given, um, a speech by either w one or both of the Rosenberg brother children. Uh, the children of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Whoa, no yeah. way. Yeah. And they came and gave a talk against the death penalty. And the whole school had to attend. Wow. Yeah, it was very memorable for, you know, even, you know, uh, little kids to um, hear about, you know, killing is wrong and uh, we shouldn't have a death penalty in this country and... And these two people, their mom and their dad, were executed, and we don't ever want that to happen again. So it was pretty intense. Yeah. So for folks who maybe don't know about uh, the Rosenbergs, they were accused by the federal government, right, of espionage, and they were ultimately arrested. And then one of the very few people that were actually charged on a particular law, right? And then, Roy, Roy Cohn was one of was the prosecutor. Right. Yeah. And for those who have seen Angels in America in that opening scene, or it's not the opening scene, but Ethel haunts yes. him in yes, the yes. in the play, which was uh mm, to see that was <laughs> fantastic. But yeah. wow, that must have been a, a heady experience. Yeah, it was. It was. And then, you know, going to high school, I went to uh, a school that, you, you know, we can talk about later, probably, uh, that's sort of described in, in my novel. It was a, uh, a Catholic boarding school for boys only who had a thought about becoming a priest. But that also entailed a lot of social justice kinds of volunteer work, Lots of discussions about uh, things like liberation theology in Central America and whether or not the Catholic Church should be getting involved in politics and whose side should, should the church be on? Should it be on the side of the establishment and the powerful or should it be on the side of the underdog? And, um, and, you know, it, it was a passion, passionate, you know, sorts of, uh, sorts of deb debates, um, you know, as as much as high school students can do that, which is pretty at a pretty good level, I, I would say. Mm -hmm. And but I wasn't out uh, until the end of high school when I I should say I came out, but then there was basically no support um, mm. in a obviously in a Catholic school that was pretty conservative. You know, anyway, much more conservative than the nuns were. I'm sure if the nuns ran it, it wouldn't have been, you know, so harsh. <laughs> but, you know, I went to college after that. That was uh, a difficult adjustment um, to transition from a real sort of homogenous, almost hothouse kind of environment, maybe like um, the sanatorium in the Magic Mountain. Um, you see the same people every day and you, whether you like them or not, you have to deal with them. <laughs> also, you make really good, close friends, friends that I still have, you know, to this day. And, uh, transitioning from that kind of environment to a university where there was just so many more people, 
Um, my high school class had 15 students in it, my oh, wow. graduating class. So it was very small. So to go to a big, you know, campus and all that took, took a lot of, uh, took a lot of adjustment. Nevertheless, she persisted. <laughs> and, um, I did come out more, you know, for real and permanently toward the, you know, like junior year and, um, joined the, LGBT. Well, at the time, it was just gay and lesbian. And then in my senior year, bisexual was added. Wow. And then I left. So the rest of the letters came, you know, after that. One of the things that we did my senior year, I helped, I helped organize a, a protest against Eddie Murphy. Now, Maybe people don't remember this, but at the beginning of his career, he used to make AIDS jokes and uh, gay jokes. And uh. he was invited to the campus as part of like the spring sort of festivities. I helped organize a protest asking him to not make those jokes, apologize and give the money that he was going to make, you know, to the AIDS Action Committee or that, that was the uh, AIDS group in Boston. I think it still exists today. And then, you know, to say he was sorry, I guess. He didn't do any of those things. But mm -hmm. it was a great experience and scary, too, because you can see even back then, well, I guess it's not a surprise that it was very provocative to ask anyone to say that they're sorry to us. Mm -hmm. Seemed kind of outrageous to a lot of people that we would even demand something like that. So uh, it was it was in college that I read The Magic Mountain. Okay, here we go. <laughs> so, Gerard, what is the book that saved your life? The book that saved my life is called The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann. German pronunciation. I've been saying man, but yeah, he is German. So <laughs> Thomas Mann. And what is it about? I mean, I gave a little bit of a intro in the intro, but you want to share a little bit with the uh, listeners about what it's about? Um, well, I'll tell you, you know, it was assigned for a course. I didn't know anything about it. Oh, and really? I started to read it and I just kind of fell into it. It's very long, as you know, mm -hmm. and it's it kind of is all-encompassing. It has a bunch of really interesting characters. You named a couple of them, Hans Kostorp and his cousin Joachim, who is the original patient at the sanatorium mm -hmm. in Switzerland. Hans Kostorp goes to visit him because his doctor says he needs a rest or a break before he starts his career as a shipbuilder or in a shipyard in Hamburg. Mm-hmm. He says, why not? Uh, he's described as sort of a mediocre person, but a mediocre person in the sense of like an everyman. Mm -hmm. And he goes to visit him. He's immediately kind of swept up into the, the routine of the sanatorium, which is very sort of regimented. It's on a daily schedule. It hardly ever changes. He basically gets um, swept up into it. And what starts off as three weeks, a three-week visit to his cousin, as you say, turns into seven years. And all of the time in the novel, which is one of the subjects of the novel, which is time, is if you look at, you know, if you count the pages, the first small period of time takes up maybe half the number of pages or three quarters of the number of pages, and then it gets telescoped. So the, the, the chunk of time actually has the fewest number of pages in the book as it, as it proceeds. And I think that was one of the 
one of the techniques that Thomas Mann used to sort of make physical the experience, you know, make the reading experience kind of feel a certain way. Hans Kastorp goes to visit. He ends up staying because, as you mentioned, he is diagnosed with a, a spot on the lung or a, a, a moist spot. One of the things that kind of goes through my mind as I read and, and as I've reread it is it's, it's actually kind of unclear how sick he is or if he mm-hmm. should even stay. And that kind mm-hmm. of is an ongoing debate throughout the book. He's got Herset Embrini, the, what you might call the, like the good angel over one shoulder telling him, go home, get out of here. This is no place for a young man. You've got a life to live. He, he kind of struggles with, with whether he should stay or he should go. He's sort of disposed to, I think, the introspection and the, the, the sort of enjoyment that he gets from, from thinking about things and from talking to people. And it's, it's, it, it's known as a, you know, as a, um, a coming of age, you know, story. So there's a lot of education in the, in the process. You know, he learns from different people like Herset Embrini, who represents liberalism and rationalism and a, a bright future ahead. Later on in the book, he meets a sort of a, a Jesuit on pause, Mr. Hernafta, who is really sort of the counter, the counter angel to Setembrini and is very sort of nihilistic and pretty gruesome. So you get to see him kind of go back and forth between these two points of view. And it's, it's, it's sort of a, in a, it's a survey course on Western, uh, Western thought in a way, going back and forth between these two people, these different principles, you know, like a, like a, like a hopeful principle and a sort of a more of a pessimistic principle. Now, the third character who sort of breaks the, the impasse is Meinherr Papercorn, who is sort of the um, Dionysian, you know, kind of figure who disrupts everything in this, mm-hmm. in this equilibrium that seems to be going on. And then I don't know if, if we should be talking about the end so quickly, but uh, one of the things that the book also talks about is death. And death is a current through the whole book. So time and death and love, because Hans Kastorp also falls in love with a very strange... It, it, it happens in a strange way, because he falls in love with a woman who reminds him of a teenage boy classmate that he had mm-hmm. um, when he was like 15 years old or, or something like that. They have the same eyes. They have the same sort of facial features. Hans Kastorp never questions any deeper that the, that they resemble each other, which is, I think, a way, you know, Tom, Thomas Mann was sort of, like you say, you know, sometimes out, sometimes not out. There's plenty of material in, in his writing that you can mm-hmm. say is like, you know, completely gay, like gay, 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 right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, some of the jokes in the Magic Mountain are very sort of, you know, campy and funny that way. But Hans Kostor. They are, aren't yes, they? Yes, yeah, yeah. And the, 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 but Hans Kostor, you know, he only takes it so far. And he, does, it, it, at least I'm, maybe you, you, you think differently. But to me, he sort of doesn't really, ex- he examines a lot of things, but that's not something that he really looks at. Oh, there's so much to to get into here. But first, I think I want to what I want to ask you is what did saved mean for you in terms of the magic mountain? Like what were the life giving features? How did this book save you? So first, the pleasure, right? 
the pleasure of reading this and having disco- discovering mm. it in a course. You know, I wasn't very happy as a you know in college, but so so to encounter a book that just m- makes you smile and laugh out loud was something life saving yeah. or life affirming. That's how I would you know start answering that, and then it's because. Like I said, it's a it's a novel about educating yourself and learning about different perspectives and sort of trying to make decisions for how you want to live your own life. Do you want to follow a path of uh, seeking freedom, or do you want to follow a path of uh, a more conservative path of just kind of maintaining the you know a, a status quo so that you can survive? And with AIDS raging, you know I think that was a very salient you know, sort of internal debate for me, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a sort of a circle your wagons kind of mentality or an explore, like ex- let's explore, let's take risks sort of approach to life. You know, I think it's a debate that everyone my age had or maybe even has, you know, today with the specter of HIV sort of hanging over your head. And this is pre-protease inhibitors and even some of it mm-hmm. pre-discovery of the the virus itself and you know it was called grid gay related immune deficiency it had all you know Mm -hmm. sort of different kinds of speculate speculative acronyms or whatever for it and uh so so to see uh and to read this book where there's certainly plenty of time to figure this out kind of also i think relaxed me to say i had time to sort of figure things out for myself that I didn't have to know everything all at once, like Hans Kostrup, Hans Kostrup does not know everything all at once. And that a person like Hans Kostrup, who is not like me in, in many ways, but who stands for, you know, for me, can actually learn things. Now, the counterpoint for him, in, in a sense, is his cousin, the one who came first, Joachim, who wants to be a soldier. That's mm-hmm. the only thing he wants. And he does not want mm-hmm. to be at the sanatorium at all. He does everything by the book. He does everything he's told. Um, but he doesn't want to spend a minute longer than he has to because he believes that he has to fulfill his his duty. Um, and Hans Kostorp is more... I guess more relaxed about getting back to work since he hasn't actually started anything yet. Uh, and I think that's a big distinction for me. Um, the, the debate about what, what I should do and what I want to do. And I think other people probably can relate to that too at an earlier age when they're sort of thinking, what are my responsibilities at, versus what are my dreams? And are those in opposition to each other or is there a way that they can actually be um, synthesized or um, you know brought into some sort of harmony so in a lot of ways maybe the magic mountain is about that struggle to harmonize all of those disparate forces in my life you know at at the time I was reading it I like that word harmonize can you tell me a little bit more, because you were talking about the pressure of time and the, and how the novel was giving you kind of like this, you have time to figure things out. What was that pressure that you were feeling to figure things out? Was it the college environment? Was it a family environment? Was it you're having all of these conflicting like feelings and you're like, I just need this to be figured out now? Like, What was it for you? 
Um, I think college made me feel like I had to figure things out. Um, I had to mm. know what I wanted. What do you want to do for the rest of your life? You know, that sort of question. Yeah. And that there had to be an answer, you know, that you had to have some answer. I'm, I'm the, uh, the second person in my, in, on my maternal side, at least to have gone to college out of all of the aunts, you know, dozens and dozens of aunts and uncles and cousins. And so it wasn't like I had any role models that were at hand to figure out. I could see what other students did. Most of their, most of my, classmates parents had gone to college so they had a little bit more of a sense of what you're supposed to do like I, for example i couldn't understand why my classmates were so relaxed you know didn't they have homework and weren't they supposed to be doing um, doing lots of you know wow. doing things and uh so you know i think it took some time you know to uh, to settle down but I think that there was a lot of a lot of pressure because I needed to find a job. That was that's why people go to college, right? Mm -hmm. At least, mm -hmm. at least that's what I was told. I mean, well, you don't have to, you you actually don't have to go to college to get a job. You know, everyone I grew up with can, most people can. That's what they did. If you went to college, you'd have to get a better job. You know, than. Mm -hmm than just what uh, everyone else was going to be doing. So it ha yeah. there has to be a reason why your parents are paying that money and you're taking loans or you're getting grants or, you know, all of, our, all of the rest of it. I do want to take a quick commercial break here because I want to share with folks how they can invest in our podcast and become an associate producer, as well as we have some other announcements. So we will be right back on the flip side of this break. Hey everyone, JP here. I want to share with you some stats about This Queer Book Saved My Life. We've been listened to in over 60 countries and over 990 cities worldwide. We've made the top 200 charts for Apple Podcast Books category peaking at number 38. We are ranked in the top 25% of all podcasts on our hosting platform Buzzsprout. And on Spotify, we were in the top 20% of all followed podcasts in 2022. For an independent podcast, that is killer. But we didn't do all of this alone. We have amazing associate producers who are financially supporting us through Patreon at $20 a month. They are Archie Arnold, Natalie Cruz, Paul Kafer, Nicole Olilla, Joe Perrazzo, Bill Shea, and Sean Smith. These are folks who believe in our mission. And if you believe in creating platforms for queer writers, queer books, and queer life, I want you to join us. Associate producers donate $20 a month through Patreon. This is a professionally recognized credit. You can use it on your resume, your CV, your LinkedIn, and we will publish it on our website, our social media, and on our own LinkedIn page. Our associate producers get to provide me with questions to ask on air with upcoming author interviews, and they have access to an associate producer-only seasonal meeting to give us feedback on the shows, as well as for us to provide them behind-the-scenes info and run new ideas past them for upcoming seasons. We're independent, we're queer, we're proud, and with your support, we can continue to lift up platforms for queer writers, queer books, and queer life. 
I hope you can join us. You can get started at patreon.com slash thisqueerbook. And if you're not ready to support us as an associate producer just yet, you can sponsor us at the $10 a month or the $5 a month level. Your support gets us on the air, keeps us there, and supports transcription services to keep our podcast accessible. Shout out to Awan Bream, Stephen D., Thomas Mishna, and Gary Nygaard for supporting us at these levels. Here's a question for you. Where are you buying your next book? I'm asking because if you buy that book through our bookshop.org page, you will be supporting an independent book retailer and we will receive a 10% commission. That's huge. Buy any book you're looking for and the ones featured on our podcast. Go to thisqueerbook.com bookshop. And we're back, and I am here with Gerard Cabrera. We are talking about the novel The Magic Mountain by Tomas Mann. And I'll try to get that German pronunciation in there eventually. (laughs) And I want to talk about now the coming out journey, because you mentioned a little bit about how maybe this novel helped with that. So you, you read the novel, and then what was that journey like thereafter in terms of, of coming out? Um, well... Uh, my junior year would be probably around the time that I read it. And I think that along with seeing other activists, a, a group had started on campus and I really wanted to be part of it, but I was terrified. Mm. But I did manage to uh, approach, you know, very carefully and um, was welcomed. And then I just became a part of that group and I started to come out, you know, to people, friends, roommates, you know, etc. And so that was the, you could say, the second coming out process that I went through. You know, and it went like most people. It went in stages. It had its ups and downs. I had the reactions of, you know, oh, I already knew that, Ugh. which is always really annoying. Don't you find that annoying? I cannot stand that. I cannot stand that because people would have to be so obliviously like ignoring the challenges that queer people have to go through. And so to sit there and be congratulating yourself on, oh, I knew that and not say, how do I build trust with this person so that they, whether it's a child or a cousin or a nephew or a spouse to be like, hey, I want to create that trust so this person feels comfortable and I can show myself to be an ally. And instead to just sit there and let the person deal with it. I, I, get, I get so angry. I get so angry. And some yeah. people are like, hey, yeah, my, my parents already knew and it was a big joke. And I'm like, oh, was it was it a joke? <laughs> right, right, <laughs> But right. anyway, anyway, go on, go on. Tell your story. Oh, oh, well, so there were, you know, some reactions like that. And then there were some, you know, more negative reactions, obviously. Mm-hmm. Family is always challenging. And my mm-hmm. family's very religious. And culturally, it's kind of not, you know, because it, it exists, of course, but you don't really want to talk about it. And you don't really want anybody else to know. That was mm-hmm. that was very challenging. So, you know, there's ups and downs. And uh, now I happen to have the great fortune of getting a work study job mm. at all, uh, you know, in of all places, Gay Community News. Have you heard of no. it? Gay Community News was a gay, I guess, a, a, at the time it was called Gay Community News, and it was a <laughs> weekly newspaper in Boston, and it was one of the oldest at the time uh, weekly newspaper for gay, lesbian, you know, 
politics, culture. It was a little thin, you know, newspaper. Mm-hmm. And I, I got to uh, be an intern there and um, write little news notes or uh, stuff the stuff the the newspaper into plain brown envelopes because it was a safety issue yeah. at the time. Yeah. And we, I think there was, if I'm not mistaken, I think there might have been just a post office box return address so that, you know, you couldn't, you wouldn't know. I I could be wrong about that, but I think, you know, it it was, you know, people don't, maybe they do, maybe they don't remember. But um, if you're mailing something out, well, anywhere really, and you see the word gay on the envelope, Mm -hmm. you know, you can get, you can have problems. So, Mm -hmm. um we would have these mailing parties every week and I participated in that. And like I said, I wrote a couple of things. I wrote, I wrote a couple of reviews. I actually got to see the Smiths perform Whoa! and I wrote a review. Uh, and that was a big highlight. Oh, I'm <laughs> jealous. <laughs> that was a long time ago. And the Smith I've changed, but I don't think Morrissey has. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> in fact, he might've been, you know, going in backwards somewhat. Um, so, uh, I think that, um, I really enjoyed that experience tremendously because I got to meet so many great people, activists and writers and, um, people who are really serious about, uh, changing things for our community. And, uh, that was where I had my, I think my gay education, my gay political and cultural education was through, through all those people. I want to ask you, you had uh, an, an email that you shared with our with Jim Pounds, our executive producer, had said a little bit about how you felt like the Magic Mountain was helping you maybe escape from disasters that you seemed, that seemed ready to befall you, like around losing your family by coming out or even getting sick before you could fall in love. Could you share a little bit more about that? You know, at the time I was reading it and around the time I was coming out, I didn't know if I would ever, I mean, it was, it was a real fear that I, I might get sick and I I might die before meeting some handsome guy Mm. and falling in love and uh, not have that opportunity. Hans Kostorp gets to fall in love and only has, you know, one night Mm. and then spends the next seven years basically waiting for something to happen. I guess that seemed kind of a a frightening prospect, you know, that you might just be able to fall in love and see that person once. And, um, you know, I could hear about that and read about that at the time, you know, through gay community news and the people that I knew, uh, people getting sick, people dying. That was really, that's really terrifying. So since the Magic Mountain is so much focused on tuberculosis and how it's really in the novel it's it's still quite mysterious you know there's treatments etc but no mm-hmm. one really knows how to cure it it does get cured at least they say so in the book mm-hmm. but it was very much i think how i was feeling about you know hiv uh and whether or not it could e- there would ever be a cure or if it would always be life-threatening to the same degree or not. And uh, with respect to family, I I also mentioned a a little bit about that. You know, I think when you go up, 
when you go up to that mountain, you don't know what you're going to find when you come back down mm. from it. You know, um, you may ascend to the to the summit and uh, survey all around you and kind of say, I'm going to go in that direction or I'm going to go in that direction. And um, that may not be where your people are from, you know, or your family of origin or, or anything like that. So um, for our hero in the Magic Mountain, you know, Joachim leaves. Mm -hmm. He, against medical advice, he makes a decision I have to go back down into what they call the flatland <laughs> and I've got to basically fulfill my destiny, you know, as a yeah. soldier. Hans Castorp takes a different, then there's a beautiful parting scene between them. It's the only time Joachim calls Hans by his first name and calls him Hans. And uh, he says to him, you know, come back, come down soon or come back soon. Um, and it's so it's so moving. It's really sort of in a way, you know, I'm sort of jumping around a little bit, but I, I thought, you know, this might this is the this is the love the the love relationship between the cousins. They are so tender toward each other and so mm -hmm. respectful and they're they are they're so kind uh in in under in um now it's cultural too, I'm sure, and class comes into it obviously these are all uh, people with money who can afford to go to davos and just right. be a patient and have seven meals a day you know the the sensitivity that they both display to not embarrass the other one or to not mm -hmm. um not try not to say the wrong thing or you know the, the the little white lie or the little um sneaking around or the little thing that doesn't get said so to preserve the other person's sense of like decorum or whatever, I I, I love that. I just think that just sh that shows real. There's, there's something very beautiful about that, and I could identify that with that as well, JP. Because coming back to my family, I thought you know sometimes if people you love pretend they don't know I'm gay, maybe it's not. Maybe there's there's a a sense of um that the, the, the silence the silence sometimes because it's a it's a different way of looking at things that silence can almost be affirming in a absent sort of way rather than say something negative they'll just kind of ignore it do you know what i'm trying to say i think probably a lot of people talk about you know we ev well mm -hmm. everyone knows no one says anything mean or nasty or anything and even if i bring someone you know it's fine but you know it's just sort of like let's keep the conversation at you know football or what we're eating or whatever and i mean people have to you know it, it made me feel a little bit more like well people try and and sometimes you don't get what you want but it's not because they're not trying you know what i mean mm. <laughs> That's magnanimous of you, <laughs> but no, I can I can absolutely see that. I can absolutely see that. I'm I'm old now, so <laughs> I I maybe it's just looking back and I and I'm trying to I'm trying to soften up a little bit. I don't know. I do want to transition to your own writing career. So when did you start writing? Well, I started writing fiction seriously in about 2009, right at the cusp of the Great yeah. Recession. Because I'd lost my job and 
for the first time, I didn't know what I was supposed to do with my time. You know, speaking of time, I didn't know what to do with myself. It was a real sort of crushing kind of feeling. And it also made me start to wonder why did I think that I had to be defined so much by a job, which is how I was raised, actually. You know, you've got to find a job, you've got to make a paycheck, you got to pay the bills. If you don't do that, you're a nobody or a loser or you're, you know, living off of other people, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. I decided to start writing. Um, and, you know, I took some workshops and things like that. And, um, and I really, I really loved it. Now, I always liked to read. Um, but I'd never really thought about trying, you know, aside from professional writing, cause I, cause I do that all the time. So that's really when I started to do it. And I started to write short stories mainly and try and submit them and see, uh, you know, See what so the question I have to ask, was there any connection between Magic Mountain and your own writing? Did you ever find any inspiration from it, either from the content, the themes, the style of Mon's writing? Well, now that I'm rereading it, of course, this is, you know, highly biased, right? <laughs> I'm saying, oh, that reminds me so much of my own novel. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, right? (laughs) Oh, that's great. That's great. Tell us about your novel. Okay. So my novel is called Homo Novus, and it is basically an attempt to write about the relationship between a Catholic priest and the boy that he sexually uh, seduces and abuses and follow their relationship over time. Most of the reporting and the things, uh, you see in the media show the, the sort of the, 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 the violation and then the consequences are, are, um, described later, um, when the child or the young person becomes an adult and they're mm-hmm. looking back. Here, you sort of follow them along up until a certain point. So you, so I think it's a little bit unusual in the sense that I'm trying to get at the here and now from both of these characters' perspectives. And um, that was what I was interested in, 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 and um, neither trying to make it more three-dimensional without obviously downplaying the, the, the violence and, and the, the harm that was caused. I think that it succeeded. I think that it succeeded in kind of bringing, bringing that relationship uh, into life and with, with all of the complexity involved. There's a lot of complexity in that. I guess I'm, I'm curious, how did you navigate? Uh, I, don't, I don't know if humanity is the right word, but there are these two characters. They are three-dimensional. How are you navigating that in a way where it's not seeming or coming across as excusing behavior, but you do want to attune to the gravity of the situation? I think for me, I mean, that was obviously a big concern, right, Um, on my part. I think the way I tried to approach it was, you know, to describe, try and be as close to use a, a, a narrative, you know, sort of method or whatever, to describe what was happening uh, from each character's point of view and let the actions speak for themselves um, so you could see what was happening. I think that was the best way for me to accomplish it, to try and inhabit each one of these characters separately and sort of imagine what, what it would have been mm-hmm. like. And I think that was hard. I think it worked. And, you know, since it, 
it's unusual because it follows them over time. I had to, you know, obviously, you know, you use your imagination and you try and, and kind of bridge these gaps and, and whatnot. One of the things I liked to, I wanted to focus on was obviously the religion, mm -hmm. the sort of ways religious thinking played into the dysfunction mm -hmm. of, of that relationship. And one of the things I learned, and I'm sure someone has written about this, um, is that I, and it's in the novel, but I, I really think that Father Linus, the priest character, really believed that or believes that he can't be held accountable so much because of being a priest. That there's something, something happens when you become a priest and that's because you sort of take on the person of Christ. It forms a, uh, it, it snaps a, or it dislocates or it disconnects your actions and the consequences. I think that's, you know, I'm just kind of going out on a limb here, but I feel like that's part of the training. It's not explicit, but I think that's, that's sort of my, my gut, you know, what my instinct tells me is that, you, you know, you kind of get carried away with this role and, you know, and there's stuff in the, in the novel about how he thinks of himself as an actor and, mm -hmm. and how you can, how actors can sort of separate the role, their role from their private life. And in, and in this case, literally, you know, the belief is that the priest is, becomes Christ during the consecration. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's mm -hmm. how, that's why it is the real body and the real blood <clears throat> for Catholics. So, I mean, it's fascinating, right? I mean, there's all sorts of, I don't know, thousand years of theology or whatever. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't read it, but, you know, there's, it's developed a certain way. And I think that that has something, you know, that has something to do with it. And it's very attractive to a character like Orlando, who is coming from, um, you know, uh, a poor, poorer family, not different, that different from Linus, um, but who isn't white and, you know, who wants to fit in and who isn't the brightest student. I mean, there, it's very attractive. You know, you can become a celebrity mm -hmm. in a certain sense. And, um, you get a, you get, have a nice car, you can have a nice house, um, you can take vacations, you know, those are very middle class aspirations. And I think that unfortunately, that's what makes poorer kids more vulnerable, I think, sometimes to those kinds of, um, um, predators, or I don't know if that's the right word, but yeah, you know mm -hmm. what I'm talking about. So the novel, tries to deal with all of this and in the context of disease and death and the magic mountain there's also disease and death in homo novus and uh, there there has to be some reckoning with that as well which remains unresolved in the book you know readers can decide whether they think father linus is going to uh, pull out of this or not um, and we certainly don't know what's going to happen with orlando because he doesn't even know whether he wants to go get a test mm. um but mm. uh th those things are for you know for the reader to decide and that was also you know i mean it's a way it's it was a way to sort of ref i hope reflect you know the rea the reality of that time you know 1987 or 88 you know uh, in in that in that time given the moment that we're in 
And we're recording this in in January of of 23, so literally a week ago, or less than a week ago, uh, Pope Benedict, who was really well known for covering all of this up and being very anti-LGBTQ, has died. What is your hope for your novel with the larger public that they're going to take away from it? Well, if anyone needs to read this book, it's it's certainly people in charge um, and people in power, because I think the book shows the damage caused to young men who are selected for a sort of a program that they're just not ready for. These sorts of schools for young, you know, adolescent boys just are a bad idea. And I know they still exist, but I they really shouldn't. Um, mm. I, I think that's that's the first thing that comes to mind. With respect to accountability, you know, I mean... We have the civil justice system, you know, that's not, well, we have the criminal justice system too, but usually the, the uh, statute of limitations has run out to prosecute anyone. But in New, here in New York, anyway, they passed a law to extend the statute of limitations for civil suits so that people can sue. And a lot of lawsuits has, have been filed. How they turn out, who knows? But it's a very imperfect way to get justice because, as you know, you know, damages are monetary. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that can help. But really what we would need is something like they did in South Africa, uh, like a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and have people come and testify about the bad things that they've done, you know, and they might get immunity. I don't know. But when when they did, did that in South Africa, I thought that was pretty intense and impressive and maybe healing, I hope. But, you know, the damage is done and the accountability, you know, it, it can, it's only, it can only be prospective in, in some regard. And so they've instituted all these new policies and norms and things like that, whether they get followed or not, you know, I don't know. So it's a big, it's a big problem. I mean, I think there's been some progress Certainly, and there's some great organizations that do that do this work, but I think that there's there's going to be uh, more lawsuits, and I think the problem itself cannot go away unless there's a dismantling of this sort of, like I say, this sort of patriarchal kind of ridiculous, you know, way of looking at people, and also f- and and looking at children, you know, looking at how families are, mm-hmm. how families exist how children are brought up. You know, I work in family court now, um, and we do child abuse and child neglect cases. I um, I see a lot of different, you know, kinds of kinds of cases. And I think, you know, I mean, I think that would go a long way is to help people kind of understand that the diversity is inherent in, I think, each person. I'd like to thank Gerard for being on today's episode. You can buy both The Magic Mountain and Gerard's novel Homo Novus on our bookshop.org page. Visit thisqueerbook.com slash bookshop. Gerard is currently working on a story collection set in the neighborhood that he grew up in, and he also has a novel project which is a twist on Shay's Rebellion, but instead as a Puerto Rican independence uprising. For updates and to read more of his work, you can follow him on Facebook. He is also on Instagram. His handle is at GerardCabrera697. And his website is GerardCabrera.com. Links for all of this are in the show notes and on our website. 
Cheers for listening today. All of our episodes are executive produced by Jim Pounds. Our associate producers are Archie Arnold, Natalie Cruz, Paul Kafer, Nicole Olilla, Joe Perrazzo, Bill Shea, and Sean Smith. If you haven't subscribed to our show, you should give us a five-star rating too. The Algorithm Gods look at those numbers to help queer folks who are looking for new podcasts to find ours. You can also listen to us every Sunday evening at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And in the meantime, stay tuned to this space every Tuesday for new episodes of 7 Minutes in Book Heaven or This Queer Book Saved My Life. Until then, see you queers and allies in the bookstores. Thank you.